everything you need to know about commercial aviation. This is Layovers. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pabadivitriou. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Hunter. We'll be your pilots for this show about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern air travel experience. Our flight time today, 48 minutes, and we expect an on-time arrival. Coming up on this flight, we're so lucky to sit down with Tony Tyler, the outgoing Director General and CEO of the International Air Transport Association, former CEO of Cathay Pacific, and aviation enthusiast. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the fast signal sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 46 to Geneva. And yes, Geneva, because we are actually in Geneva for once, overlooking the runway. There was a Swiss aircraft that just took off, another 320, I think. And we are with uh, Tony Tyler. Hi, Tony. Hello there. So, for those who don't know who you are, because probably there are some, can you just tell us? Sure. Uh, well, I've just completed five years or so as the Director General of IATA, the International Air Transport Association. Before that, I spent my career at Cathay Pacific Airways, based in Hong Kong, although I also lived in various other countries on the Cathay Pacific Network during my time. And I was, uh, by the end of that, I was Chief Executive of Cathay Pacific for a few years too. So uh, I've been in aviation all my life. Oh, well, I'm very jealous. Alex, you are too, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to just set the ground because for me, IATA is when I was a kid traveling, you know, I'm 41, so that you know, when I was a kid, it was that thing, that logo that was imprinted at all these paper tickets we used to have that we sadly don't have anymore. And it gave out this kind of feeling of trust and solemnity about it. This was this globe, it's an iconic logo. What is exactly IATA? I'm sure that a lot of people are not sure what you guys do. Absolutely. Well, we are the association of major airlines around the world. Our members altogether carry some 86% of global traffic, passenger and cargo traffic. You don't have to be a member of IATA. Many, many airlines are not. I mean, uh, we have 260 members. Most big airlines belong to us, but we have, still have a number of airlines among the, particularly among the sort of the new airline community, the I hate the expression low-cost carrier, but I'll use that for now. <laughs> um, you know, airlines like Ryanair and, um, and EasyJet don't belong. Southwest uh, at this stage don't belong, although uh, you know, they've expressed some interest now. They're starting to fly internationally. They're looking at whether it would make sense to join. But what, what do we do? Well, the most important thing we do for the industry really is we like to say we, we serve, lead, and represent the industry. But in practical terms, the thing we, we operate for the industry is some very significant financial services systems. If you go and buy a ticket from a travel agent, whether it's online or, or a bricks and mortar agent, the chances are the money will find its way to the airline through an IATA system. And we also operate a clearinghouse between the airlines. So if you buy a, a ticket on more than one airline, the money will find its way through to the airline that's actually carrying you through a big clearinghouse that we operate. So every week we kind of send a whole lot of airlines bills and we send a whole lot of others checks or we transfer the money to them. And altogether, our financial systems handle about $380 billion of airline money every year. We operate a hugely important part of the, the plumbing of the uh, financial plumbing, if you like, of this industry. We do a whole lot of other things too, which we can get to talk to if you're interested. Wow, I, I had no idea about the money bit. That's absolutely fascinating. So this, to facilitate uh, any code sharing or interlining, basically, IATA is the tie that binds. That's right, yeah. And the airlines will file with us all the agreements they have on how to prorate the revenue 
how to split the revenue between the airlines all who were all covered on an itinerary. And we process all that for them. And around the world, we collect money from travel agents. And we build a travel agent, we collect the money, and then we settle it to the airlines. So, you know, again, travel agents are issuing tickets on, on dozens and dozens of different airlines. We collect the money all in one go, and we work out how much to give each airline, and, uh, and we send it off to them. And we also operate a, a currency uh, service where, you know, airlines will use us to remit the money for them from foreign countries back to their head offices because uh, it's, you know, it's a much more efficient way for us to do it than for them. So all these different services that we offer, uh, really it's hard to imagine a global interconnected business such as um, the industry is without IATA. As I often say, you know, if, if we didn't exist, then they'd have to invent us. And you exist for like right. more than 70 years, I think, right? That's right. We celebrated our 70th anniversary uh, last year. I was reminded of that because this month alone, I received two emails from two airlines. They also celebrated 70. So you're, if you were an airline, you'd probably be one of the oldest, actually. Yes. I mean, what happened, of course, after the, uh, after the Second World War, the industry kind of got itself all organized and off it went. What happened was that the, the countries around the world founded ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, in 1944, in Chicago, Chicago Convention uh, was signed, and that started ICAO. And a year later, the Association of Airlines was founded, and actually in Montreal. Our headquarters is actually Montreal. We're a um, statutory corporation founded under a Canadian statute. But our, our administrative head office is Geneva, because uh, this time zone is a lot easier to run a big global organization from than, than GMT minus six. So we, we have a big office in Montreal where we concentrate our commercial activities and most importantly our operational activities and we're literally just across the road from ICAO and we're in there all the time. We're represented on many of their working groups and, and standing committees and, and things like that. So um, I haven't talked about what we do on the safety side and on the operational side and many other aspects of what we do but we're really all over this industry. I will go through because I will also explain a lot of why you why you were chosen or why you chose to be, I think, the outgoing CEO now because you are leaving the IATA, correct? That's right. I mean, actually, my last 10 days or so uh, at IATA and Alexandre de Juniac, who's a former chairman and CEO of Air France, took over my responsibilities actually on the 1st of September. And I'm here for this month to support and advise him before I retire. Your, your philosophy, because that was my question, your philosophy, and you mentioned that just before we started recording, is that this industry is a force for good. Can you tell us a bit more? Can you let us in? I mean, the point is this. The world trade and the world understanding between, between peoples depends on connectivity and on transportation. And the modern way of getting around and the only way that you can get around long distances quickly and efficiently is air travel. So you know, aviation and the connectivity that it provides helps to drive economies and that helps to lift people out of poverty. It helps to develop economies and, and facilitate industries that just couldn't possibly exist without air transportation. And it also, I believe, helps social development. So it helps keep families connected who, uh, who otherwise, uh, through immigration or whatever, would lose each other. It helps people. I mean, it's, it sounds corny and trite, but it's true. It helps develop the understanding between peoples. You know, we all understand so much more about the world and what make different people in different parts of it tick. You know, what, what conditions they live in, what their priorities are. You know, we know that so much better because we've, we've been there, we've seen it, or they've come and they've seen us. And all this has to be, for me, a force for good in the world. And too often, governments take that for granted and they get in the way of progress and they they actually hinder and hamper their own progress and development, economic and social, 
by penalising the industry. Some governments in some places almost treat us like a, a sort of a, a sin industry, like gambling or alcohol or something like <laughs> that, you know. Um, and, they, and they're so misguided. And in, I, you know, as, as I said, I spent much of my, my working life in Asia. And I've seen for myself what aviation has done to help the economic development of countries in Asia. Since I've done this job in the last few years, I've traveled to other parts of the world where I've seen it. I see it happening today. And I think it's a wonderful thing and it's inspirational and it um, you know, makes me feel great to be part of it. And I know that that feeling is shared by most of us in this industry. I do agree. I used to live in, in Manila in the Philippines. And, oh, me too. Uh, you know, oh, well, see, <laughs> there's a lot of these overseas workers and yeah. you, you can feel that that industry is really what connects them. The question I would have, though, is you mentioned before the term, uh, you hate using the term LCC, so low-cost carriers, right? The fact that you have low-cost carriers and more and more long-haul low-cost carriers, do you think is one of the things over the last five years here, but also over your career that has changed the industry? Oh, sure. You know, look, I, I, the only reason I hate using the expression low-cost carrier is that nobody wants to be a high-cost carrier. You know, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, you know the, the, if you like, I don't mind the expression of the legacy carriers or the network carriers, whatever you want to call them. I mean, they, they are, many of those also have very low costs now. They've done a great job of restructuring their businesses. Um, so that's the only reason I don't I don't like the expression. But I, I have huge admiration for what those businesses have done and the leaders of those businesses have done. I think they have brought air travel to a lot of people who would have thought they could never have afforded it. And they've helped to connect communities that weren't connected before. And they've enabled uh, a whole lot of development in a whole lot of very, very positive ways. And the, the legacy guys who tend to be the members of IATA have had to respond. And I think they've responded extremely well on, on most parts. And it's, it's made their lives uh, much more difficult in some ways, but it's also opened their eyes to opportunities that they hadn't seen before. So I think it's been a hugely positive development. I, got, I think there's nothing but good about it. I think Sir Tim Clark says that trade follows plane routes. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. It does. I don't think anybody that listens to this uh, podcast would bemoan the expansion of air travel and, and increased service, especially not Paul and I. But I know that one of IATA's focuses, especially during your tenure, has been around aviation's impact on the environment and climate change in general. Is it possible to reconcile those two things? They feel diametrically opposed. Alex, I think it is, yes. And I mean, look, we've got to accept the fact that modern aircraft are going to burn fuel, which is going to put CO2 into the atmosphere. There is, at the moment and for the foreseeable future, no other practical way to fly on a commercial basis. Solar Impulse has just gone around the world, purely solar power, inspirational, fantastic. You know, when Louis Blériot flew the channel the first time, who would have thought that 100 years later, aviation would be how it is today? You know, and in 100 years' time, they'll be looking back at that solar impulse thing. Goodness knows what will happen by then. But let's be realistic. For the foreseeable future, we rely on burning hydrocarbons. And while road transport has alternatives, while sea transport has alternatives, and a lot of other forms of, of energy use at the moment, whether it's power generation or whatever, there are alternatives. There is no practical alternative to hydrocarbon fuel for aviation. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the industry some years ago decided on setting itself several targets. It set itself the target of improving fuel efficiency by at least 1.5% per annum up to the year 2020. And we are meeting those targets. Indeed, we're exceeding them. So that's on track. Then the industry set a second target, which was to have carbon neutral growth after 2020, which means that when we get to 2020, we will freeze the total net emissions of the industry at that level. And any future growth in emissions will be, if you like, 
offset by equivalent savings somewhere else so that the industry as a whole will not generate any further emissions. That's carbon neutral growth from 2020. And the third goal is to achieve a 50% reduction in carbon emissions from the industry by the year 2050 and 50% compared with the level of 2005. And that's an aspirational goal, wow. which we are, which clearly the industry is going to have to work towards over the next 30 years or so. But then the key thing is carbon neutral growth from 2020. That's the next one we've got to meet. We have a, a four pillar strategy for meeting this. The first is by improvements in operations. So airlines and others operate at less than optimum levels of efficiency. And uh, there's a lot you can do to improve your operation. You know, many airlines are still carrying too much fuel and they're burning fuel, carrying fuel, and everyone's getting more efficient at doing that. Uh, there's a whole lot of other operational improvements. So operations is the first pillar. The second pillar is infrastructure. And here we're talking about infrastructure on the ground. So we need more runways so that aircraft are not having to stack and burn unnecessary fuel and operate inefficiently that way. We also need to do a, a lot of work to improve the efficiency of our air traffic management infrastructure, particularly in Europe, but elsewhere in the world. So airlines are flying zigzag routes just to suit air traffic control requirements, completely unnecessary in today's age. We should be doing more continuous descent approaches, which are much more efficient than the kind of step-down approach that all too often we have to do. And so that's the second pillar, improvements in infrastructure. The third one is technology. And here, of course, we're talking about new technology engines, new technology airframes, materials, and a whole host of developments like that. But we're also talking here about new technology fuels. And here I'm talking about sustainable biofuels. And we're not here talking about biofuels that compete with food or water resources, but we're talking about biofuels that can be generated from things like uh, urban industrial waste, from algae or other renewable plant and uh, vegetable sources. We know these things can be done. We know they work. The problem is getting them produced on a commercial basis in commercial quantities. And we're in a little bit of a kind of vicious circle here where they're expensive, so they're not used very much, so the volume is low, so they're expensive. And what we need there is for governments to help break the industry out of this cycle by with taking economic measures of support to de-risk the production of uh, commercial biofuels for aviation, much as they've done in de-risking solar power and wind power and so on. We need to see governments step in and, and do this as it, there is no viable alternative for aviation. So that's the third pillar is, is technology. And the fourth pillar is market-based economic measures. And here we're looking for the governments of the world who are going to come together next, well, actually later this month in ICAO to develop a, and adopt a market-based measure for the offsetting of aviation's growth in emissions after 2020. Sorry, that was a very long involved exposition of what's being done but there is no, a lot it, going on it's fascinating fascinating because i th i i mistakenly assumed that all the pressure would be on the manufacturers or the yeah, engine producers but clearly not oh no because we're the operators and we're the ones who burn the stuff the manufacturers are coming to the party and in fact ikeo 
earlier this year approved a set of standards on emissions, rather as the car manufacturers now have to meet certain emissions, sort of unit emission standards for road vehicles. So the manufacturers have signed up to or have imposed on them, but it's it's a, a standard they know they can meet. Constant improvement in efficiency of emissions of airframe engine combinations. Do you engage directly with those? IATA was very engaged in that whole process of uh, getting that through ICAO, working with the manufacturers and the regulators, in effect, ICAO, to, to come up with standards that were challenging but achievable, because that's what you need. There's no point having a standard you can't meet, but obviously it has to be challenging, and that's what we've developed now. And it's being implemented, you know, it will be implemented in the future. Now ICAO has, has adopted it as a standard. You, you were mentioning building more runways. We live in London and we still don't know what was going to happen with that potential third runway. But that leads me to another question, because when we talk environment, a lot of people also talk about the problem with noise. Are you active into that part as well? Do you do any type of engagement there? Yeah, very much so. And I mean, our, our operational experts in Montreal are working with ICAO all the time on, on these noise standards. And indeed, you know, we engage uh, heavily at local level with governments, with airports on the noise issue. And, and the fact, of course, is that aircraft are getting quieter and quieter. Watch an A350 take off, you can hardly hear it. I mean, it's amazing. And actually, I was in London myself this week. I had meetings with the Heathrow Airport Limited. We're sitting in their meeting room in the Compass Center watching aircraft taking off, and you could not hear them take off. And they were just across the taxiways, literally, to that to that runway. Look, noise is a very sensitive issue, and I can quite understand it. I mean, I've, I've lived near runways myself, and I know what it's like. But uh, what we need to adopt is what's called ICAO, again, has a set of standards and recommended practices for the management of noise, and it calls for a balanced approach. You know, so don't build new housing developments at the ends of runways or on the flight path. And <laughs> too often that's what happens. You have to balance the approach between clearly recognizing the, the needs of communities living near and under flight paths with the needs of, of communities to see economic and social development. And, and that has to be done in a, in a sensible, coordinated way. And technology can help so much here too. The modern technology for aircraft navigation can literally you know, deliver aircraft down a very defined line that doesn't deviate. And that means you can spread the noise around. The problem is that, of course, if, if we take Heathrow, for example, there are various communities who are affected by noise. I live they under the been. flight path. So right. So you I can see a difference between a 350 and an old 747. <laughs> if you reduce the amount of noise, you, to be honest, you don't get much thanks for it because, you know, there will still be some noise and they won't thank you until you've got rid of all of it. And even then, maybe <laughs> not. But, but of course, anywhere you redistribute the noise to, you'll hear about it in, in no seconds at all because anyone who hears an aeroplane for the first time didn't have before will be unhappy about it. It's a very difficult area, but the appeal that we have is for, for common sense and for a recognition that, of course, there is a noise price to progress, but recognize that these modern aircraft with the high bypass ratio engines and with the sort of smoother and smoother fuselages that they have are remarkably quiet compared to their predecessors. There is always constant progress in the right direction here, Let's get politicians to recognize that and not simply to pander to the understandable sentiment of constituents that it's bad and it's always getting worse. It's not always getting worse.
The other topic that, of course, people talk about when we talk about the airline industry, safety. Yes. I mean, it's an incredibly safe industry. We all know this. It's been said over and over. But obviously, every time there's an incident, lately it was that Emirates aircraft that crash-landed in Dubai airport, everybody was safe, which proves the point. We, you learn, we learn about the past mistakes. What is your message there, and what does IATA do that the public might not see in the background about safety? Well, first of all, it is the highest priority of everybody in the industry. I mean, and that, that's not a, just a cliche. It really is. And the reason that the industry is so safe is that everybody is conscious of it. Everybody works at it. Nobody's complacent about it. Every incident that happens and a whole lot of things that don't develop into incidents even get analysed. The causes are identified and changes are made to prevent them from happening again. I mean, that's how the system works. What we do at IATA, we do a whole lot of things. But first of all, to be a member of IATA, you must be on the registry of those airlines who have passed our operational safety audit. IOSA, or IATA Operational Safety Audit. Every member of IATA has passed that audit. It's a regular two-year audit. The newest development of it is it has quality assurance systems built into it so that you have to continuously keep up to standard. You can't simply catch up every two years and pass the audit and let things slip again. So we do that. All 260 or so members of IATA are on that register, and so are about 140 or so other airlines who, although they're not IATA members, find it uh, beneficial for one reason or another to be on the IOSA registry. Now, in some cases, some countries have mandated IOSA registration for their own airlines. So in effect, we're providing a second level of safety oversight to their own civil aviation authorities. And there's some big countries like Brazil, Mexico, I think Bahrain's another one. And there's a whole lot of others as well that, that have done that. And uh, we know that's, I think, gives nice recognition to the quality of that particular standard. But on top of that, we have a very active safety committee with senior airline representatives who review and keep under review all the um, safety issues that, that arise. We are building the world's largest database of operational data. And, you know, the, the thing is now that I describe the process by which safety has improved. Whenever there's been an accident or an incident, it's been investigated very comprehensively and fairly and without any sort of fear or favor. And then the root cause is identified and the problem fixed. And that's driven us to this level of safety. The thing now is there are relatively few, very few accidents and incidents to learn from. So we need to learn now from routine operations, you know, routine operations where, where things maybe haven't gone entirely according to expectation or plan. And how have the crew handled it? Or how has it been managed? And what have we learned from the way? Did that work well? Or did it actually not work so well? And yet everything's, everything's been fine. Everyone's safe. But we need to learn from those things. So now our program is to collect data from routine operations. And this is, if you like, a big data, you know, this great uh, new thing of big data. So, and, and let's learn from that so that we can predict how? The, next, the next accident and stop it happening before we do. Well, for example... You know, we, we want to be in a situation where we could look at a particular airport and be able to look at at what altitude above ground are aircraft coming in to land at that airport completely configured for landing. And what are the consequences of aircraft that are below certain altitude? 
are they experiencing any problems on landing? Is, is the incident rate for those aircraft higher? And how does that relate to the altitude at which you're fully established? And so on. And, and, and therefore, you know, can we learn something about for that particular airport where, you know, what the, the safest way of approaching that airport is? Yeah, I'm not saying it's not safe now, but there's a lot more we can learn from digging in the data. And that's perhaps a very simple example. But uh, nowadays with aircraft having changed really from being sort of, you know, seat of the pants type flying where, where you know, um, experience of a pilot was, you know, of hands-on flying was really what guaranteed safety. Nowadays, aircraft are complicated systems and the pilot becomes something more of a systems manager who still needs to be able to manage the aircraft when some of those systems are not working or not giving him the information he's expecting. The challenges are slightly different. And we need to be aware of that and adopt a a more advanced approach towards aviation safety as a result. I'm fascinated by the data thing. And and, and following on from that, do you think we're moving towards a time when airplanes will be streaming real-time data on every component that's or and every decision that's going on in real time, not just back to the operations rooms, but to a central so facilitator, perhaps even IATA. You know, aircraft are already streaming a lot of data. You know, for example, you know, the engine manufacturers in their headquarters are receiving data on every engine that they've supplied uh, that is operating at any time. I mean, it's amazing what's what's being done right now. You know, um, Rolls Royce in Derby can tell you exactly what's happening on a Trent 700 on an A330 somewhere operating in Asia as we speak, and the same with GE and Pratt. It's the it's the same thing. So, you know, this constant streaming is probably only going to increase. The question is just the volumes of data and how do you handle it and how do you identify what is, you know, if you're just looking to monitor even a basic thing like position, you know, what is the bandwidth that we can cope with realistically and how much is it all going to cost? You know, this is a relevant consideration. These are questions that are being debated now and as communications technology gets smarter and smarter, I think we will see indeed more and more streaming and uh, more and more live, you know, real-time streaming that is that is kind of actionable. How it's going to be handled, I'm not sure. I, I don't see IATA as being a likely candidate to provide that kind of service. I just mentioned earlier this uh, incident that happens to Emirates, and we know that their black box, to use the term that everybody uses, was actually streaming, so allowing to have very quickly data about the incident. The public discourse is often of that black box. People do not yeah. realize all the rest. It's really the black box. Do you think at least for that bit, we're going to go into a live streaming? I think it's what people are asking for, but now is it relevant? It is, a, if you like, a, an obvious approach to consider, but a couple of things. First of all, you know, as I say, it gets down to the volume of how, what volume of data can you handle? And secondly, as things stand at the moment, it's not straightforward to get data from every part of the world to where you would need to get it. There are still parts of the world where there are sort of holes in the communications map. And so I, I think it'll be a, a while before we see the end of the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder as they are now. But clearly that is the direction that we're heading. The initiatives that you spur, whether it's in safety, of course, or passenger experience, we'll come to that in a minute. You mentioned the term cost. You have to take care of all those airlines. Do you mandate stuff that will have to be mandatory for every single airline? Do you go in phases? Some airlines might not be able to cut all the systems as fast. So how do you deal with those differences? Generally, I mean, it's both the approach that IATA takes and the approach the regulators take. 
is to set standards that are realistic for everybody to meet. There's no point having a standard that nobody can meet. On the other hand, the prime driver in this particular field has to be safety. But there are different ways of achieving safety. And what we try to do and the way we encourage the regulators to um, design their regulation is basically to be what we call performance-based, which you might think of as outcome-based safety. So the, the regulators need to define the outcome they want and let the airline or whichever entity it is find a way to achieve that outcome. So um, to take a simple example, if the regulators were to say, right, we need to know, you know every 15 minutes where your aeroplane is, there may be a very simple automated way to do that, which covers much of the world and for many airlines. And so they can just you know, flick a switch and send a signal, and that's fine. But in other parts of the world where that isn't the case, or for aircraft that are not equipped with the right technology to do it, you need to find another way of doing it, which would be the pilot calling up a reporting position. It's the outcome that's important, not the process to get to that outcome. I wish we could talk for hours about these topics, but we know that most of our listeners are obviously like the public discourse again, what they see is what they get, and usually the whole discourse is about the passenger experience, with how do you feel at airports, and of course everybody nowadays complains about the legroom, might not go in there, but I know that you have at IATA a group called the Passenger Experience Management Group, and one of the initiatives is called Fast Travel. I've been yeah. mentioning not Fast Travel itself, but the fact that recently I've seen experiences in FCO at Gatwick and other airports where it seems everything is automated. I just scan, you know, boarding passes and passports and it gets super fast. Is that a bit of the idea behind that? Absolutely. And the fast travel program is about basically self-service, you know, because when we talk to passengers, our airline members talk to their passengers, people would like to do that. They like to be able to be uh, self-contained, as it were. So your, you know, your home printed boarding card or using a, a kiosk to get your boarding card at the airport, that's all part of our fast travel program. Home printed baggage tags, which we're trying to get adopted. We're having problems from regulators, particularly here in Europe. The, the customs people are coming up with some, to my mind, and irrational reasons for getting in the way of home printed baggage tags. But imagine if you don't have to queue even to Drop check your baggage, bag. Yeah. I mean, the other day leaving Geneva here, I thought I was going to miss my flight. I had my boarding card. Hope printed at home, but needed to drop the bag. Couldn't do it myself without queuing up. And of course, I thought I was going to miss the flight. I didn't in the end. <laughs> but you know, if you could just go and literally put your bag on a conveyor belt because it's, you've already printed the bag. So that's another one. You know, automated baggage claim where you don't have to go and queue up if your bag is lost. Baggage tracking. You can fill in the form yourself and have it done. So all these things are all part of our fast travel suite of products and services that we work with airlines and with airports to get all these things adopted. The role of IATA is to convene the people in the industry who need to work on this issue to develop standards, because it's really all built around global standards. Just think about it. The barcode on your baggage tag needs to be readable by every baggage handling system in the world, and the data on that needs to be understandable, and so on. The barcode on your boarding card, it's all about standards. And uh, IATA has very strong sort of convening power to get the right people around the table to set these standards and plan their implementation. Recently, the U.S. Congress decided not to insert themselves into the conversation about seat pitch and, and leg room and all of that stuff. I think the words they used were, we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But do you think it is something that needs to be regulated? Can it be regulated? Should it be regulated? No, I don't think it should. I mean, look, this is a very, very competitive business. And the market is by far the best way 
to regulate, if I could use that word, the provision of service. It's the, the regulator's job, and it's a very important job, and I'm not against regulation. The regulator's job is to make sure that the industry is safe. And as to the degree of comfort people want to travel in, if it's too uncomfortable, passengers will vote with their feet and go somewhere else. Mm. But of course, passengers want cheap fares. And one way of getting the fares down is to reduce the unit costs so that you can bring the fares down and still turn a buck. One of the ways to, to reduce unit costs is to get more seats on board the aeroplane. Often it means one, one way is shorten the seat pitch. And look, I'm, uh, I'm six foot three, which is about 191 centimeters. Yeah, he's so. very tall. He's almost as tall as me. I was very surprised. <laughs> he lives through the same problem I have. <laughs> exactly. So, I, you know, I like a good seat pitch as much as anybody, but equally I like cheap fares. And on a short flight, I'll put up with it. It's a long flight, I'll pay more and, and get more seat pitch. It's entirely the wrong approach for regulators to, and particularly in the United States, which went through a very um, comprehensive deregulation, which started in 1978 when they abolished the Civil Aeronautic Board and they went to a you know, completely deregulated environment, which, was, which has been massively productive and successful in terms of what it's delivered to the economy of the country. And now there's a sort of re-regulation by stealth risk which, as you say, I'm pleased that the Congress decided in the end not to go down that route. We have a Washington office, and we work closely with the Office of Airlines for America, which is the, uh, the U.S. carrier's main lobbying group. We keep a very close eye on what, what the Department of Transportation is thinking about and, and looking to do, and, of course, what Congress and other, other sort of regulatory bodies are looking to do to try and fight off these attempts to re-regulate by stealth. Some people are saying that the diminishing seat pitch with is less of an issue could have an impact on the speed of a potential evacuation. Those things are closely regulated by the authorities and airlines and manufacturers have to demonstrate that they can live with the standards. And you know what? You mentioned a couple of times the Emirates incident recently. And look, as you say, all the passengers survived that. Sadly, a firefighter died in the ensuing uh, fire, but everybody got off that flight. You know, generally speaking, when aircraft need to be evacuated quickly, they are. And I remember a Cathay Pacific incident many years ago now with, where we had an engine fire on takeoff and the crew did a superb job landing. And of course, everybody evacuated. And again, you know, I think it was less than two minutes. Everybody, you know, all 400 passengers were off that 747. And I went to meet the passengers after I was in the job responsible for that at the time. And uh, I can tell you, they were carrying their duty-free bags and, their, and, their, <laughs> and their, despite all the instructions to the contrary, you know, and yet they got off that aircraft in, uh, in super quick time. I agree with you. I mean, there's always a lot of people, oh, why did people take their carry-ons on, you know, and there's muscle memory that kicks in and you do it anyway. Some people say we should go even further there, maybe like auto-lock the overhead bins or whatever, which I'm not sure it's actually. But do you think even more could be done or should be done? Because actually, like you said, people have escaped. And, and I think the same thing. I, mean, I think now, of course, we're seeing video of what goes on. on the, <laughs> yes. on the thing, and we saw that from the Emirates. Everything is filmed now. Look, it is a, it is a problem because you know, in the, at the margin, it could cost lives. I'm not sure what can be done about it. Again, I would, I'd be nervous about regulation in this area. I certainly don't think locking the overhead bins is a good idea because then you'll just get people delaying trying to open the things. I think what the way we may develop is that airlines may be required to or may choose to re-emphasize during the briefing, the safety briefings, and perhaps during the evacuation in orders not to take personal belongings. Because at the margin, as I say, it could cost lives. No doubt the investigation into that Emirates incident and others that have happened 
we'll look at those issues and no doubt we'll see some recommendations coming through. What do you think about these people who say that, you know, more and more we see those very quirky safety videos, you know, Air New Zealand's done, Virgin America's done some, you know, Virgin, all the Virgin brands have done it. And some people are saying, have we gone too far? And people are like, not really listening to what is being said, but just enjoying the movie. Uh, should we go back? Is that something you have an opinion on? I do. I mean, I think I think there's particularly the. Uh, I'm quite familiar with the Air New Zealand ones. I think they're brilliant. <laughs> they're brilliant. I mean, I'm a rugby <laughs> man too, so it's great to see these All Blacks kind of having a bit of fun doing that. And, and I think they're brilliant because you will watch it. I mean, I'm sure many of the people who listen to this will be frequent travellers. I mean, how often do we really pay attention, the right attention? To that I, you know, mea culpa. I know I don't. I do check where the nearest emergency exit is. But do I really listen to all the stuff about the rest of it? Not really. And yet I will on Air New Zealand and I will on Virgin America. I will on an airline that makes it interesting and, and uh, fun to watch. And I think it's a good thing. And I think more airlines would do it, it would be even better. Still on the passenger experience, we've seen that, I don't know if it's on the impulse of low-cost carriers or not. Again, that term you don't like. It's more and more of a menu. People choose whether or not they have access to lounge, fast track, the food or not. We've seen some, you know, lately issues about BA cutting them down on food. Shouldn't it all be as a menu? You choose what you pay for. And also, at the end, we often mention that the industry has legacy software. Is it able to cope with all these new amenities that people could choose? The GDSs are not always ready. We've heard lately, again, Emirates telling, should we not create our own GDS to being able to manage that? Is that something you're working on? Yeah, well, first of all, I think the, what, you, what you call, we, we refer to it in the industry as unbundling. And it's absolutely uh, right and proper that airlines should be allowed to do that. And uh, it, it helps drive innovation. It, customers buy what they want and not pay for what they don't want. I mean, if you want to check a bag in and I don't, why should I have to pay Why should I have to pay more in my fare so that you can check a bag in? I mean, you know, if you go and buy a, an Apple iPhone 7, right? The guy in front of you buys the basic iPhone 7 with no no accessories, maybe, you know, the minimum, you know, whatever it is. Storage, yeah. Four right. gig or something. <laughs> and then you and you say to him, excuse me, wait a minute. And you say, oh, and, he's, and he says, yeah, sure, why? And he says to the guy behind the desk, right, I'll have the iPhone 7. I'll have this, you know, the 64 gigabyte thing. I want a case for it. Uh, oh, and I want to buy those, the pod Your phones. Or whatever, and, all yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, he, you say, how much will that be? And he says, well, it, you know, that's going to be 50% more. And you say, yeah, well, that's okay. But I'll tell you, what, I'll give you 25%. And, and this guy who's just bought the basic version will give you the other 25. That's not how it works, is it? But that's what, the, that's what those who say you shouldn't unbundle are saying. This is nonsense. So I'm all for unbundling. I agree that the legacy systems by the, the distribution companies and by the, the airlines themselves are not up to the job of doing it really well. And that's why at IATA, we have, the last five years, we've been driving an initiative we call the new distribution capability, which is again to help set standards. So technology standards for airlines to be able to distribute through the indirect channel, through the GDSs, the global distribution systems, through the travel agents channel, the same rich display and functionality for their product in its different elements that they can do on their own websites. So, you know, on an airline's website, you can generally pick and choose different things, different elements you want to put together. You can work on how much it costs. And the idea is we want to be able to do that through the travel agency channel and have full comparability therefore of you know you want to go on this airline with lounge access an extra bag extra leg room deluxe meal whatever compared with that airline with you know a higher car and no lounge access with different elements and, a, and fair flexibility blah 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 and compare the rich the detailed 
offer and proposition between different airlines. And that's what we're looking to do through our, what we call NDC, the new distribution capability. And it's coming. Already some airlines are adopting it. Or are Well, many airlines have adopted it, but already airlines are starting to sell in that way. And I think we're going to see a rolling wave of more and more development happen over the next few years. I don't think Norwegian is part of IATA, but I've been flown them. Not to, yet. <laughs> not yet. I've been flown them from uh, Newark to London. You know, I'm used to legacy carriers, to use that term. And, you know, it's great. You know, I chose what I wanted. I paid for what I wanted. It was a great experience because you set the expectations because you paid for what you wanted. So uh, the world has changed a lot in the last five years, not to mention, you know, oil prices, geopolitical instability, and the... The industry's had to react to all of that, but I, it feels like the one thing that's caught just about everybody off guard is the lithium-ion battery issue. Mm. Um, not just the sort of the danger of them, but also their ubiquity. This seems to be like a growing issue for just about everybody involved. It has indeed been a very important issue. As I just said, you know, safety is the number one priority. ICAO has now set standards for this, which, which essentially say that bulk lithium batteries can't be carried on passenger aircraft. It's a, that's a slightly you know, abbreviated <laughs> thing. <laughs> but the real problem um, that we have with this, and I mean, we are, I completely understand why that regulation has been brought in. The real problem is that it's not the, the declared, the known shipments from reputable suppliers. You know, those have always been, you know, properly packed, properly according to the dangerous goods regulations that IATA helps to distribute around the world, that's often been um, been absolutely fine. But it's the unknown, undeclared, frankly, you know, fraudulent and deceitful shipments, which the the airline doesn't know, maybe even the freight forwarder isn't aware of, that are the real risk. We are working now with a number of trade associations and uh, people like customs authorities and so on to try to get governments to clamp down on this kind of thing. And it's not from every country in the world, that, but clearly China is a priority here. We've actually brought the attention of the authorities to websites, which actually say on them, you know, we can ship lithium batteries, don't worry, we don't declare them as such so that we don't have a problem. And I mean, this kind of thing is just absolutely unacceptable. It's outrageous. And, uh, you know, the authorities in China are doing what they can to stamp it out. But this is the real risk now. I think the, the regulations in place now, if they're followed, will produce complete safety. But it's the, it's the unregulated and unknown that is the, uh, the risk now. It's actually ironic. I was on the flight today coming to see you from London and first time on the PA they specifically told us if we had a Galaxy Note 7, the Samsung phone that had all these battery issues, we should actually turn it off completely. You shouldn't even fly with it. That's a pretty, that was a pretty nasty uh, story, that whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sitting next to a wonderful, you'd be very jealous, uh, Alex, uh, a wonderful uh, replica of a 777-300 right. uh, by Cathay Pacific there. I think it says 1993. Yeah, that's a 300 not the uh, ER version. That's just a, the basic regional one, yep. So you've been at Cathay Pacific, you've been at IATA. Were those worlds very actually different or do you feel they were very close to you as a person? And, and then what's next? Do you want to go back to working in a pure airline or did you like this world of standards? Well, no, look, I tell you what, I've, I've been just so lucky. I mean, I worked for over 30 years for a great airline, Cathay Pacific, a wonderful, wonderful place to work with great people fantastic place and a region and, and was able to ride the wave of growth of that airline all the way and it was just a 
fantastic time. And to be CEO of that airline has got to be one of the best jobs in the industry. And then to be able to, as it were, retire from that and come and do you know, this job, you know, the Director General of IATA, it's a, it's a, there's only been six, well, there's seven now. Alexander is uh, 007, as I like to call him. Um, but, uh, you know, I've just, so, I've been so lucky. I've had two fantastic careers uh, with two wonderful organizations, and I've loved both of them. It's been a wonderful ride. Very different. You know, it took a bit of adjusting when I came to IATA and being, a, you know, if you're the CEO of a major international airline, you're fighting and battling all the time for the interests of your airline. And then you come to IATA and you've got to lift yourself up to this. We're not talking about the industry. And it takes a bit of adjusting, but I, you know, I've enjoyed that process too. And they've both been fantastic. I wouldn't want to sort of compare one with the other. They've both been really brilliant. I've enjoyed them a lot. However, this job is a tiring job. I mean, I've flown, I've, I've kept track of it. On average, the last five years, I've made about 150 flights a year. Oh, my God. Wow. And, <laughs> and you know, that's a lot. They're not all long haul, but, you know, they're, they're all together, 150 flights a year. And I've spent, you know, well over two thirds of my time, not at my nice apartment here in Geneva. And I've had enough of all this nonstop travel, frankly. I mean, you know, the standard is you get home and you unpack and then you pack again because you're going somewhere else the next day. You know, it's, it's great. And I'm not complaining at all about it. I knew it would be like that. But it tires you out. I've had enough of it. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm not going to do any more full-time work. Um, I'm going to go back to live in Hong Kong and have an oh, apartment there, which is I'm looking forward very much to moving back there. And I'll be spending, um, spending the summers at a house we have in the south of France, which I'm looking forward to as well, uh, because the summer in Hong Kong is pretty hot and sticky. And, yes, and if you don't have to be there, why not go somewhere else? And uh, I'm on the board already of a very successful aircraft leasing company based in Singapore, BOC Aviation. Oh, wow. And I would like to do um, possibly two more other board positions as an independent non-executive director. If... Uh, Anybody in the industry would like my advice or support or help for something and, uh, and it suits my lifestyle and uh, program to do it, I'm very happy to, to do that. So I'm, I will stay connected with the industry through, sure. through BSE Aviation and through other, other connections that I have. And I'm looking forward to contributing maybe a little bit more from the sidelines in future. We always have a question that we ask uh, all our guests is, uh, do you have any favorite story about a travel you did with a, whether it's a short haul, long haul, Anything it could be. Do you have something that stands out in your memory of all these years? Well, look, I've got so many. Yeah, I'm sure, but... I've got so many. I mean, stories and, and experiences. Uh, I suppose, I mean, you know, you'd naturally think of the things you've done most recently. And perhaps it ties in a bit to the whole story about the benefits of aviation as a, as a force for good. I told my wife sort of late last year that I was going to have to be in Chile immediately after Easter to take part in a big IATA event that, that is built around the air show in FIDE, which takes place every two years in Santiago. And uh, it's been her long-term ambition to go to Easter Island. So she said, well, you know, well, let's go to, you know, I'll come with you and let's go to Easter Island. Uh, for Easter, Easter on Easter Island, what could be better? And I said, I said, I said, hang on, you know, that's nowhere near Santiago. That's another five hours flying. And she said, yeah, well, we'll never be closer than that. <laughs> so, let's so we did. And uh, we flew to Easter Island. We had, we had Easter on Easter Island. And it, it is, it's about five hours from Santiago. There's a daily a LATAM 787 flight to oh, wow. Easter Island, which is one of these flights with no diversion field. So it's a, a go, no-go decision they have to make when they're halfway there which is an interesting operation, of course. And, and there's a community that just would not be able to exist in the modern world if it wasn't for aviation. It is a fantastic place, really interesting place. You see these wonderful moai, you know, these amazing statues. 
And there's a, quite apart from that, there's some wonderful hiking to be done and very interesting geology, volcanoes and things like that. That's a very recent, very happy uh, experience and happy memory that I have of, of something that you, you know, without aviation, you couldn't have done it. And you just said you did that in a Dreamliner. My God, yeah. I have to do it now. <laughs> and the last question we also ask all our guests, do you have any favorite airport? Well, Hong Kong is a favorite airport, of course, because it's... Uh, You know, I was sort of involved in in the whole development and and the old Hong Kong or the new one. Well, <laughs> the, the new, the new Hong Kong International Airport. By the way, it's not called Chetlap Kok. It is Hong Kong International Airport, um, <laughs> and um, I think that's a great airport. Other airports in Asia are find it great to get around. Of course, you know the obvious ones like uh, Singapore, Changi, and Incheon, Incheon, Seoul, uh, yeah. which is great in Seoul. Those are, are kind of favourites. And you know what? I've I've become. Uh, You know, rather emotionally attached to this little airport here in Geneva. You know, it's um, it works, and it's a complicated airport because it's got French domestic, Swiss domestic, Schengen, non um, yes. and European non-Schengen, and of course, true international, international, all coming and going. So it's quite complicated how the different flows of passengers <laughs> work. And I've looked out. I've been I had this wonderful office overlooking the ramp for the last five years, and I will have always very affectionate memories and happy memories of this airport too. Well, on that, Tony, good luck for, I mean, we're very jealous that you're going back to Hong Kong, both Alex and myself. And uh, thank you so much for having done that with us. Thank you so much, Tony. My pleasure. On behalf of layovers and the entire crew, we would like to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing.